tuned in to another month's episode of Energy Voices. My name is Sean Collins, and I'll be the host of the next hour of programming. This month on Energy Voices, we're going to go back to the roots of Student Energy, who is the host of this show. Student Energy was founded on the principles of giving a platform uh, and an opportunity to educate and get engaged for post-secondary university students all around the world. And on this month's show, we're going to go and, and we're going to look into some of the most inspirational stories from students and youth from across the Student Energy Network. One of the founding principles of Student Energy was to try to inspire youth to know that they can make a significant impact on our energy system today, and they don't need to wait for 20 or 30 years worth of industry experience in order to make an impact on our global energy system. So this month we have stories from three different incredible youth who are making impacts on the energy system in very unique and distinctive ways, and they're going to discuss the advantages and disadvantages of working on unique energy projects as a youth. Before we get into that, we're going to kick things off with This Month in Energy, and then we're going to start off with our first interview with Jorge, Jorge Luis Quinojosa, who has started Renueva in Mexico City. here, keeping you up to date with energy from across the globe. So here's the latest lowdown. GE Renewable Energy announced it secured over 7 gigawatts in onshore wind orders in 2016. The company had previously announced that GE onshore wind business booked over $3 million of orders in the fourth quarter of 2016 alone, partly thanks to the strong market in the US. Argentina has declared 2017 as the Renewable Energy Year, as the country looks to increase awareness about the advantages of renewable energy and the importance of sustainability. A decree issued by the government calls for energy diversification through the use of renewable energy sources in the electrical generation as well as the thermal energy sector. The decree states, the country's target of having a 20% share of renewable energy in electricity consumption by 2025. South Africa is one of a range of developing countries that have emerged as leaders in the global race to switch to sustainable energy by 2030, according to the World Bank. These nations have boosted their policies to help improve people's access to affordable, reliable and clean power. Some 40% of 111 countries surveyed by the World Bank had strong policies to improve people's access to reliable and affordable energy, make industries and homes more energy efficient and increase countries' use of renewable energies. These other countries which have emerged as leaders alongside developed countries include China, India, Vietnam, South Africa, Brazil, Mexico and Turkey. The need to unlock affordable and clean energy across Africa remains a major concern with vast renewable energy resources available but untapped and millions without electricity. A World Energy Council meeting was held in February which addressed the best ways to unlock the investment necessary to develop a clean 
and widespread energy infrastructure in Africa. Renewable energy sources made up nearly nine-tenths of new power added to Europe's electricity grids last year, in a sign of the continent's rapid shift away from fossil fuels. But industry leaders say that they are worried about the lack of political support beyond 2020, when binding EU renewable energy targets end. Of the 24.5 gigawatts of new capacity built across the EU in 2016, 86% of this was from wind, solar, biomass and hydro, ellipsing the previous high of 79% in 2014. President Donald Trump and his top advisors have often scoffed at government's support of green energy. His chief strategist called it madness, but The largest U.S. government agency, the Department of Defense, plans to forge ahead under the new administration with a decade-long effort to convert its fuel-hungry operations to renewable power. Ambitious plans have been drawn up for a network of tidal lagoons around the UK coast that could provide up to a quarter of the country's electricity and there is potential to roll out the technology in many parts of the world. Tidal lagoons work by using a wall to capture a body of water in the sea or a tidal estuary pushed in along the rising tide. The water drives turbines as the tide moves in and then as the tide falls, the turbines are reversed and the energy from the falling tide is harnessed again. Unlike with wind and solar, the amount of energy produced from tides is predictable months in advance and is now being recognised as a major renewable energy resource. To find out more energy stories like these, go to studentenergy.org every month to keep up to date with all things energy. That's all from me. Cheerio! Next up on Energy Voices, I'm very excited to welcome Jorge Luis Hinojosa, who was the chair of the Latin American Student Energy Summit in 2014 and is now working on a fascinating new startup called Renueva in Mexico. So welcome to the show, Jorge. Thanks for watching, I'm glad to be here. So the the first question I have for you is is this whole episode is themed around youth who are involved in energy uh, and really interesting sustainability startups. And so I'd love to know first off, um, what is your educational background like? What is it that got you interested in energy in the in the first place? Well, I, I, my interest in energy actually grew before entering college. I mean, I was in in high school. I love math. I, I love physics, and I love nature. And then I found in renewable energy like a great way to put all those pieces together. So when I started uh, university, I studied at the National Autonomous University of Mexico in mechanical engineering. I got involved in the in the School of Engineering's Energy and Environment Society, where I met a lot of youth actually very interested in doing things related to energy, sustainability, climate change, the environment, 
more about thinking that there was not a a course like actually dedicated to this. It was up to us to 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 get involved in that. So that's why I met a lot of passionate people involved in in energy projects or interested at least in in sustainability, which eventually took us to the first well to our first International Students Energy Summit in 2011 in Vancouver. Well, my, like, which was actually my first contact with with student energy. And uh, by then, I had already like the initiative to to build a recycling project in in Mexico, like in my university. But I don't know, like I think actually seeing youth were which were around my age making a difference, and you know, talking like you know, like head to head to world leaders and seeing that youth could make an impact that definitely made a difference. Mm-hmm. So uh, back at university, we noticed uh, we had different initiatives to build projects, and we're about uh, Recycling batteries, and what about like energy generating bicycles? And uh, for some reason, I got real interested into waste management and resources. So, resource reusing, and noticed that there was a lot of uh, polystyrofoam or styrofoam EPS, it's known differently in different regions, uh, which is like the thermal cups we use commonly for coffee. And there was a lot of it, and uh, it was not being recycled. So, we got in touch with the industry and actually partnered, managed to partner to start a recycling program in my university. So I gathered a bunch of students who were also interested in the subject, and then uh, and, we, and we got the program running. And how did you do that? So just to, just to jump in there, so I think one of the things that we find sometimes is that students and youth tend to be very interested in some of the sexier sides of the sustainability movement. So there's lots of interest in renewable energy, and there's lots of interest in, in, in programs that sort of have a big visual outward impact, or you're sort of building something physical, um, where, whereas you sort of mentioned you were really interested in waste management and uh, recycling and styrofoam, and, and those are non relatively non traditional things for um, a student to get interested in. And so how did you rally other students to be interested in these sorts of things that aren't sort of at the forefront of the conversation around the movement to a more sustainable energy system? Well, I think I was lucky enough to land in a group of really passionate people who were eager to do something about the environment and who wanted to get hands-on into something. So uh, there was a project that called a lot for a lot of attention within our group because of the traction we got after after starting, and it was the thing was that it was a necessity that was very clear to see in the day to day in the university, where we would see like the the trash cans and the trash containers filled with almost like the most visible residue was was styrofoam, because like for example, cardboard, aluminum, uh, PET, all of that was picked by like 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 waste pickers who then sell it for recycling. So it was something that was easy for people to to relate to on a, to their lives on a day-to-day basis and and then uh, just the the i don't know the momentum we got in the movement got lots of people involved and interested mm-hmm. it's it's great because when you have a cause that people relate can relate to and uh, then they see a possibility and making a direct impact mm-hmm. in let's say in this case in a short term i think that's what got most people involved and really wanting to participate in this. 
Mm-hmm. And and so where is Renueva today? So you sort of talked about the the inspiration story of being getting interested in energy and feeling like you had an opportunity to make an impact and you sort of had a very specific focus area of, of something you knew you could make an impact on. And so where are you at today? What is the sort of current status for Renueva and what are some of your plans going forward into the future? Sure. Well, after we got the problem going at the university, we noticed that, like, I mean, it was feasible to collect this, the, the material and then went on to develop the technology. And that I did with my partner, uh, Hector, also an ASUS 2011 alumni. And, uh, well, once you try to build a prototype, you realize you need money. And that's when you have to start making sense of the business. At first, it was all like, a, you know, like just, just do something good for the university, for the environment. And then we just realized we had to monetize it somehow for it to, to actually work and have an impact. So we started building the, the, the business and got some inv- very early seed investors in from actually the, the university's alumni institutions who were interested in supporting projects. And, and then we went on to build, actually build a company. Starting with the business model, we entered business more case competitions. We were, we did actually pre grant those in 2014. We won like the Santander Prize for Business Innovation here in Mexico, which gave us a grant for, well, back then around $40,000. Um, and we also got into the Quintech Challenge, which is Mexico, which was also an experience that helped us grow a lot. And, and then uh, we just started getting funding for actually building the technology. Like something we had not considered was that actually building a, a physical prototype required much more capital than we thought. So that, that has been a challenge all the way through. But right now we're setting up the the, the plant. We're at our recycling point. We already have the facility. We're just, uh, you know, like finishing details with the installations, with electric stuff. We also have like recycling um, agreements with local governments so that um, in theory at least, the styrofoam they get from their recycling, where their waste management systems will directly go to us. Although that's been a major challenge to overcome as well, like actually getting the material. So we're we're in the tech of scale, finishing the upscaling of, of the technology, while at the same time just getting everything done in the plant. In the it's going to be like a pilot commercial plant. Mm-hmm. So it's it's going to be the first one. We're actually developing the. the New technology with a recycling, sorry, with a research institute, and um, we're hopefully just a few months from actually starting to recycling, to recycle styrofoam in, in hopefully great amount. And and how does your technology work? So you mentioned sort of the the need for technology to help in recycling of styrofoam. Um, is there is there much you can share about how your technology actually works and and what the end product is? Of course. Uh, well, we noticed that there was not something commercial available for that. I mean, that was economically feasible because those, the 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 products out there, the machinery, was actually not energy efficient at all. It, like it was more expensive to the energy cost to recycle styrofoam than to what would you would get from actually recycling and selling it. Uh, what what our machine does? It first grinds the material into smaller particles, then it goes to a thermal mechanical compression process called extrusion where, where it becomes like we are basically take the air out of the styrofoam which is around between 92 to 98 percent air and then just about eight to two percent plastic so we have to remove all that air and then what we get is like uh, like say you 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 squeeze the toothpaste and and then it comes out 
like not it's not that consistent consistency but it's the image like little spaghetti that mm-hmm. come out of the process and then we just cut them at high speeds to obtain pellets those pellets are made up of polystyrene which is a plastic that's used for for example cd cases uh, lighters writing pens keyboards it's used in a lot of applications day-to-day applications so what we get at the end is this material that we didn't sell to companies that use that product to build new art product article new plastic articles such as the ones that you mentioned or photo photo frames or mm-hmm. I don't know like rulers there's plenty of stuff you can do with that material so in general terms that's how the technology works and and are you seeing there be an interest from uh, with the pelletized uh, pieces are you seeing there being an interest in uh, companies use that as a sort of high-end input to sort of say that they're you see that in a lot of cases where coca-cola had their plant bottle where I think it was 20 or 40 percent of the plastic material came from plants um, is that something you're seeing that there this be a commodity input that's of higher value than just traditional pellets well, yeah, I mean, it's actually uh, less expensive uh, to produce a recycled power than to produce a, a raw version, raw material one. So that's an advantage to the industry, and uh, depending on the application, it may require to be less or, or more clean, like cleaner or, or perhaps with, with more material on it. And um, the interest is mainly on the lower price. And uh, the thing is, we already have people willing to, like, wanting to buy tons and tons of material right now. We just have to get the line going, testing the actual material that comes out from the final technology. And uh, once we get that going, there's lots of people willing to buy it. For for example, for photo frames right now, so we want to export it. Like, some want to use it for, like, school, school, uh, school stuff, like rulers and Mm-hmm. And that kind of things. So perhaps at the corporate level, uh, we would we'll, it will take us a bit longer to mm-hmm. to build a supply, for example, for a program as as broad as, as thinking about Coca Cola, yeah. like countrywide, for example. Yeah. Well, that's where we're heading to in the next. Like the plan is to get there. Yeah. And and so one of the questions and, and sort of part of the theme of this show was related to uh, youth making an impact in the energy system. And, and, and so just to sort of ask the very broad question, have you found there to be any advantages or disadvantages in doing what you're doing as someone who's younger and who's recently out of university and is sort of just starting your career? Well, uh, I've, I've found both, of course. Like, first, the advantages. Um, like, you're very eager and you have a lot of energy when you're young that, like, people perhaps, uh, as they grow up, sort of lose, and perhaps we have that passion and, and a sense that ingenuity, and we can go out and do so much without thinking about everything that could go wrong, which is a lot. Uh, but, you know, you have that sense, that uh, hope that you'll just get through and that determination to go through it. Plus, like, people like seeing you, like, passion to, like, actually making an impact, actually, you know, like, Leaving everything in the park to make it work. So, I think you're more eager to get support from perhaps not the industry as as a customer, because I mean, in the end, they they want your product to work. But perhaps people in the industry who could give you advice or could you introduce you to someone. So, as 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 you're trying to make an impact, you do have that advantage of people. I think just goodwill in the people to to try and see this project work and and at least what I've run into is they 
that you said around the sort of creativity and energy uh, of youth. It reminds me of Kaylee Taylor, my student energy co-founder. One of my favorite quotes of hers is, uh, I'm going to paraphrase, but it's something along the lines of, uh, youth are too naive to know that we shouldn't be able to do the, to do the things that we've already accomplished. And uh, I just love that quote, that there there does need to be some audacity um, and, some, and some sort of hopefulness in this whole space because it is a challenge and it is, it is difficult to make systemic change um, to the energy system. So uh, uh, that sort of brings us to a close for the, the questions that I had for you, uh, uh, Jorge. But um, I, I do know that there is uh, another summit coming up in Mexico. And so maybe a sort of a last plug if you wanted to give us a quick overview of the upcoming summit in Mexico um, before we say goodbye. Of course. Well, I will follow that quote from Keely, and it's quite true. As you grow older, you start thinking of, I mean, how did I think about doing it? And then you did it. Uh, and yeah, we have the International Student Energy Summit coming up in Mexico, in, in Merida, Yucatan, which is uh, in like the southeast part of Mexico. It's going to be in June this year. It's going to be amazing. Like the place is beautiful, uh, rich with culture, with a lot of people interested in energy, a lot of science things about there. The team is great, you know, like lots of passionate students working on it. And uh, we're hoping it's going to be incredibly diverse based on registry and registration. We have people from all over the world coming, like top speakers as well. And uh, we're also not focused on the, student, on the student experience and making it interesting, engaging, inspiring and, and, you know, just getting people trying to be life-changing for all of the students who, who get there and get in the dialogue and start making a difference with us mm-hmm. as well. And uh, when when I'm down for the summit as well, um, it would maybe be great to do a quick uh, update interview. I know you'd said that you're sort of looking over the next few months at some updates to um, the technology at the Research Institute and some of the, the plant uh, updates. And so maybe in June we can do a quick touch base to sort of see where, where progress has been and then uh, sort of follow the Renueva story as you guys grow. Sure, I love to, Sean. 
Yep. Okay, well, that brings us to a close here today. I just wanted to say a huge thank you and, and give you big kudos for 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 being in, in the fight for, for pushing for a more sustainable energy system for a very long time now. And uh, it's great to see the progress that you've been making over the years. Thanks a lot, Shani. It was great. Next up on Energy Voices, Meredith Adler, Student Energy's Executive Director, is going to be interviewing Apoor Vsina. Apoorv is somebody who I've gotten to know over the past few years as he's also a member of the Energy Futures Lab and is working on some really interesting projects around carbon utilization. So here is Meredith interviewing Apoorv. Hi everyone, this is Meredith Adler and I'm back in studio here with Apoorv Sinha, the president of Carbon Upcycling Technologies. Hey Apoorv, how's it going? Good Meredith, how are you? Good, good. Um, so I'm really excited to have you on the show here today because we just actually hosted you at the Alberta Student Energy Summit, which is the event that was put on by our chapters in Alberta um, for our Youth in Action panel. Uh, and I could say you were definitely one of the stars of that panel, so it's great to get you on the radio show to dive into your story a little bit more. Uh, can you let our audience know what it is that you do and kind of why you're here today? Absolutely. Meredith, first off, that was a great event that you and your team at Student Energy held. I think generally there's there's definitely a, a need to get youth involved in some of the sustainability issues and energy-related issues that policymakers are talking about. And I think the energy that you had, I guess with the pun intended, at the <laughs> event was really uh, was really remarkable. Like I, you know, I was approached by a few people after the panel discussion uh, asking about kind of the journey that I've been through and some of the others in the panel as well. So kudos to you and your team for putting that together. Uh, and yeah, to, to give you an idea about what I do and your viewers, uh, I'm a chemical engineer. Uh, I work with a, a couple of companies. Uh, the, the primary company is called Zero Core Technologies. It's an oil field service company that uh, two veterans from the oil patch, Greg Bozer and Randy Cuson, started in 2007. And they hired me on in 2012 to start looking at novel coatings and products that we could provide to our oil field service industry in Alberta. But they also gave me the mandate of looking uh, far and wide, uh, creating industry engagement and R&D engagements with uh, universities for new developments of all kinds. So new materials to do with clean tech and carbon capture. And about three years ago in 2014, we started a new company called Carbon Upcycling Technologies, which spun out of ZeroCore and is focusing on commercializing a process to make valuable nanoparticles and additives from CO2 emissions that we capture from the atmosphere. Uh, and, and between those two, uh, I managed to stay fairly busy. So, <laughs> um, I bet you do. So you just said valuable nanoparticles. What, what is a valuable nanoparticle? Yeah, that's a good question, and I apologize for the jargon right off the bat, but basically a, a, a nanoparticle is, is a very fine powder. Uh, nano uh, in, in standard metric dimensions is basically something that's a billion times smaller than a meter. So we're talking about uh, very fine particles that are, you know, a thousand to ten thousand times thinner uh, or finer than a strand of hair. And basically the advantage of having fine particles of this kind is that they have quite a few unique properties that otherwise you don't, 
that otherwise won't be evident in larger uh, powders. So with carbon upcycling technology, what we have wo worked on is creating a, a chemically induced uh, production of these nanoparticles. We basically use powder in our process that absorbs uh, CO2 gas. And while it's acting as a sponge, it's actually breaking apart as well um, and, and becoming a nanoparticle. And what we found over the last year is that these additives, uh, which are at the end of the day just fine powder, can be, uh, they can be added to various different industries. They can be added to concrete, asphalt, um, even in some very uh, state-of-the-art applications like photovoltaic cells, uh, pharmaceutical drug delivery, and, and things like that. So th they have quite a, a few different applications, and, and we're excited about scaling up our production to be able to explore all of those in, in a meaningful way. So this is pretty incredible. So these nanoparticles that you're actually capturing from CO2 could potentially be used for anything from pharmaceuticals, so working with people who have illnesses and need special drug deliveries, to enhancing how we make cement. Is that right? And even That's solar exactly panels right. you mentioned. Yeah, so I mean, you know, there's a few things here that kind of bend your mind a little bit, Meredith. Like, uh, you know, when you think about CO2 that we're emitting, uh, and then uh, think about potentially making that a solid that can make our buildings more sustainable and stronger or our roads more durable over harsh winter seasons. Um, you know, that's not necessarily kind of the, the dots you connect when you're uh, being told in the news about how big of a problem CO2 is. And, and really the vision behind carbon upcycling was to uh, change the paradigm that we have, like overall change the view that we have on CO2 and and look at it as a resource as opposed to as a pollutant that needs to be, uh, you know, delivered underground in millions and millions of tons of quantity. Uh, for me personally, the one application that really changed my view fundamentally about what CO2 could do was the drug delivery application you talked about. Like we've done a lot of work at the um, in conjunction with the University of Waterloo, and we found that some of the nanoparticles that we've made can actually serve as vehicles to carry cancer-killing drugs to cells that are affected by cancer in the human body. And we've gone fairly far into this. I mean, this is not just an outrageous claim that I'm making based on, uh, you know, something I read somewhere. Like, we've actually got a lab working at a, at a very um, high-end university here in Canada um, that, that is working not only on uh, test tube testing, but also doing some testing in mice with our nanoparticles. And so, you know, this isn't just conjecture or some kind of academic talk. Like, this is actually stuff that is being proven as we speak. And, and to me, to see how our technology can transform a pollutant gas to then potentially, you know, create an avenue to cure cancer, like a disease usually caused by pollution, I think is kind of... To me, anyway, it was an example of, uh, you know, science and chemistry coming a full circle. I mean, that is one of the most incredible narratives I think I've heard. But so now actually what's boggling my mind is coming back to how we think of carbon capture storage, because you you were mentioning here, you know, these things that you're doing, that nanoparticles are fairly proven. But in terms of carbon capture storage as a technology, can you give our listeners just a quick overview of what the field is and then 
you know, what your technology is that literally sucks carbon out of the air. So the CO2 emissions that we're talking about in terms of climate change, there's a lot of thought around, well, we need to actually take it and extract it from the air because we need to get to negative carbon at some point if we're going to avert the worst um, ramifications of climate change. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you capture carbon and how much of it there is kind of to capture? What's what's the process there? Yeah, and, and that's a good question because at the end of the day, all of the work that's being done in the field has to be put in perspective. As humanity, we're emitting over 60 billion tons of CO2 a year, if I remember the, the number correctly. And and really, as you said, uh, there's there have been multiple reports and, and overall consensus in the global community that uh, very soon we not only have to get away from fossil fuels, but also have to capture the CO2 we've already emitted to create that um, that sustainable future that we're talking about and a, and a future where the global temperature is under two degrees hotter than what it is right now. Now, the field itself is very diverse and, and really it's um, it's split in two different fields, I guess. There's, uh, you know, the people that are talking about extremely large projects that have to do with carbon capture and storage, which is basically to take uh, CO2 from uh, point sources like a coal power plant or a natural gas power plant and um, convert it to a liquid form and then put it into uh, geological formations, basically putting it underground in aquifers like the ones that we get water from. Uh, this doesn't have any kind of toxic benefit, uh, toxic ramifications, I guess, because CO2 is not a toxic gas. But the concept is that this is the only way that you can scale millions and millions of tons of CO2 capture so that it actually makes a dent in the emissions. And and that is a very valid point. The challenge is that uh, there's really no one willing to pay for that kind of cost. Uh, most of these projects are multi-billion dollar projects. Uh, the few that have been done have had, um, you know, issues with staying under budget, uh, even on budget and on time. So uh, there's just been a narrative that's built um, between policymakers around the world that uh, the economic case for this is is kind of a tough one. And especially since 2012, you know, since the energy market has kind of dwindled a little bit, uh, more and more governments are backing away from that. The second uh, approach to this is uh, ca capture and utilization. So don't just, you know, create liquid CO2 and inject it into, uh, into the earth, but rather uh, use it in some kind of a meaningful way so that our society becomes less dependent on um, unsustainable practices. So, for example, you know, if, if uh, you can make more um, sustainable fuels from CO2 or more sustainable plastics or uh, materials, then that sounds like a good story because these are materials we use every day and in large quantities. Uh, most of the companies that are working in this space are trying to convert it to biofuels, bioplastics, or some kind of a concrete related product. Uh, the challenge with, with each of them, Meredith, is that they're all high volume, but very cost sensitive industries. Um, so, you know, the, the challenge with any new technology, especially when you're dealing with high purity CO2, they're, they're basically a litany of technical problems that you have to solve. and and after that, you have a lot of market barriers that you have to overcome because, you know, you might have something that works really well and captures a lot of CO2, but maybe it's, you know, 10% too expensive compared to what they're doing now. And 
these industries have razor thin margins of maybe one or three or four percent. So if you're 10 percent more expensive than something that's being done, uh, that's definitely too much of a, a hurdle to cross. Um, so from our perspective, you know, when we were looking at this problem uh, in, in defining the vision and kind of the approach that carbon upcycling technologies would take, uh, we decided that we wanted to make sure that the technology we move forward is a platform technology. Uh, it's not just focused on one industry like concrete or plastics because, you know, putting all your eggs in that one target market can be too much of a risk for kind of the, the scale of problem that we're trying to solve. And and that's where we've been fairly lucky in that the, the additives that we produce have been... Um, have been showing you know great merit and and benefits in in a variety of different applications. I think the other thing I wanted to add is a second subset of you know people that uh, talk about utilization of CO two is groups like the Rocky Mountain Institute in Colorado, mm-hmm. and they usually and you might be familiar with this Meredith like uh, they were at the Globe last year in 2016 as well, uh, but Dr. Amory Lovins and his group are convinced that really the best way of making us more sustainable in society is not to focus on you know biofuels and bioplastics which tend to have fairly dubious cases in in if for the most part in terms of how much more sustainable they really are compared to how we do things today but rather to move into renewable energy altogether and to make aviation more sustainable to make transportation and trucks more sustainable and so they very much believe that as a society, we need to focus on efficiency mm-hmm. because that is a game changer. It's kind of, uh, you know, a lever that has the highest uh, ability to, to make large scale movement. And so they, they're not really advocates of CO2 utilization, but rather advocates of increasing energy efficiency of society. And one of the neat things that we think uh, carbon upcycling provides is that we have a technology that does make plastics more sustainable. It does potentially make uh, solar cells and renewable energy more uh, you know, competitive and more economically viable. So in a sense, um, we feel like we're, we're bridging a technical gap between people who want to use CO2 and uh, the people that say energy efficiency is the be all and end all. Because in a sense, if, if we can scale up correctly and really prove out market traction over the next year or two, we'd be achieving both uh, in the same way. So I think now that we understand a little bit about, you know, carbon capture and as well as carbon upcycling technologies and kind of the new path you're carving, I want to know a little more around, you know, how you got there. So can you tell us a bit about, you know, what your story is? How did you possibly get into this idea of, oh, we could create nanoparticles out of CO2 that can infiltrate all of these different industries that are ripe for disruption. I'm, I'm having a hard time drawing lines with that. Yeah, no, that's, that is a good question. And, and really, to be honest, it wasn't at all a, uh, you know, a path that I intended on taking. I guess before I jump into answering that question, Meredith, just on the point that you made about the narrative that oil and gas companies and coal companies are mostly driving carbon capture and storage, I think that is true. And and really the reason they're doing that is because us as a society are are provoking them to, you know, fight for the social license of operating in our world. And they see these efforts as a way of getting that social license. And I think 
that's where awareness of what we're doing uh, and, and the impact of our energy ecosystem on the global environment is really important to understand. I don't think you have to be, you know, an engineer or some kind of a scientist to really appreciate it. It's just uh, really understanding that us as individuals, regardless of our background and education, can can be a part of that narrative that us as society give to these companies. So if we make you know coal power companies and energy companies feel like they have to um, fund carbon capture or carbon utilization projects to be viable and be a part of our future, then I think you know we should in a sense take credit for how we're creating that change. But really, uh, to answer your question about how I got into this, I mean, well, actually, I, I did, did want to jump in now that now that ahead. you mentioned yeah. that. I think because um, that's something we work on a lot at Student Energy is really, mm-hmm. you know, letting people know the basics. Um, and I think that you made a really good point in that it's you know, you don't even. One of our other guests that's actually on this show today as well, his name's Kikimbo. He's um, from Uganda, and he actually came to one of our summits as a business student and thinking that energy didn't really apply to him as a business student and then ended up leaving the summit incredibly passionate about getting engaged in renewable energy back in his home country. And I think it is those little pieces of awareness that, yes, this does really very much apply to you that can make a huge difference in in how people view their agency. So whether it is that you're, you know, only you know, supporting oil and gas companies that are taking action on climate as well, or if you're, you know, getting engaged in renewables or carbon capture or anything, really. Um, it is important to realize that with a little information, people can make a big difference in, in how companies and governments and, and everybody else acts on these issues. So, anyways, it was a very cool point to, to elaborate on. Thank you for that. So now hopping into your story, unless we want to keep that conversation going, where did you like? Where did you come from, and how did you get so interested in carbon capture and and entrepreneurship in general? Yeah, that's a good question. So I mean, my my background is a little bit unique in that I've had to travel quite a bit through my childhood. But um, my dad, incidentally, is a petroleum engineer, so he's been in the oil and gas industry and the conventional energy industry his entire life. He used to work for uh, the national oil company in India. And then when I was eight years old, uh, we moved to Kuwait uh, because he joined the national oil company in Kuwait in the Middle East um, back in 1998. And, uh, you know, having grown up in a Middle Eastern country that um, relies primarily on oil and gas for energy, like I guess I've had a bit of an understanding of uh, exactly how important that is to society. But I did my middle school and high school there and then moved to uh, Atlanta where I did my chemical engineering undergrad. And I think it was probably at that stage that I realized that, you know, a lot of the things that I was seeing in in media and the news um, was giving me the impression that things aren't being done as efficiently as possible. And so when I was in my third year of of university, uh, a friend of mine and I, um, in the aftermath of the Haiti earthquake, decided that, uh, you know, the fact that it took, I think, over 100,000 people outside a 10-mile radius of Port-au-Prince, it took them over two months to get any kind of help from the outside world. Um, we saw that situation as being fairly uh, sorry. Like, we, we felt that that really had to had to be better than that. Like, we, we as, as humanity had to be better than that. And 
um, we really just brainstormed a few ideas and, and thought about, you know, what are the technical elements of of that challenge that aren't being solved with, with how we do things today. And what it led to was Ben and I um, starting a company called TOHL, uh, which was an acronym that stood for Tubing Operations of uh, tubing operations for humanitarian logistics. Um, we we kind of gave it that name initially because we needed one for our incorporation documents, and we <laughs> didn't really like it. Like we really thought it will die. With... Yeah, it was a it wasn't a name that caught on with anyone. Like you know, we had three or four people helping in the first six months of the company's formation, and everyone hated the name. Uh, but somehow, you know, six seven years in, it's still around. So. <laughs> Maybe there's a story of persistence there as well. But um, re- really what happened there, Meredith, is that, you know, it was what we found is that it was just passion that was fueling this. Um, you know, we kept getting feedback from fairly large organizations in the humanitarian industry, from the civil infrastructure, you know, uh, sector, all claiming that this kind of technology or, or approach wouldn't really work. The idea was to use helicopters to lay flexible plastic pipe uh, to create short pipelines, uh, you know, in areas that had broken bridges, roads that were uh, covered by mudslides and things like that. So instead of having to, you know, get bulldozers and stuff to clear up the roads or repair things, you could lay a plastic hose over two or three kilometers and use that to get water um, across, you know, these hard to traverse uh, areas, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we got some money from the, the Chilean government. Uh, we were also, I think, uh, the startup of the year in Atlanta back in 2011, I think. So we got a little bit of support. Um, we did a pilot and the company's still going. It's about five years old now as a, uh, as an, as a corporation. And we have done a few different projects. Um, while Toll was happening in Chile and my partner kind of took over the responsibility of making that run, I actually moved to Calgary um, and started working on my master's in in uh, the energy industry. And um, about a year into moving into Calgary, I found um, the guys who run ZeroCore, Greg and Randy. Um, incidentally, I actually met, met them because I was trying to raise money for Toll. <laughs> and, and they... They were not impressed by the idea. They didn't really see money in it. And in my defense, you know, they were comparing this to the oil patch in 2012. Uh, so really, nothing makes money compared to the, to that kind of time time in in the oil patch. But anyway, they they kind of shot down the idea. But they did say they needed an engineer or someone with a chemistry background to look at new coatings and new materials. So they hired me on. And uh, about a year into uh, my stint at ZeroCore. Uh, the Emission Reductions Alberta Group, uh, which is an entity here in Alberta that uh, tries to valorize the use of CO2 and reduce Alberta's CO2 emission uh, profile, uh, they launched a competition called the Grand Challenge. And they were looking for ideas and technologies that can use CO2 and actually make money doing it, which is actually a really tough problem, as I mentioned before. So mm-hmm. when you know, we, we kind of looked around, like we were in touch with 30, 40 universities around the world anyway at that time. And we found a few early stage publications that seemed to, you know, pique our interest. They seemed to make a lot of sense and not a lot of work had been done on them. So we kind of just made a decision internally in our group that we'd much rather go with an early stage unproven technology than try something that has already been tried before and hasn't really, you know, 
worked spectacularly. Um, and so that's kind of where it went. We applied to this grand challenge thing. Uh, we got uh, a fair bit of seed money from the Alberta, Alberta government. And, uh, you know, two and a half years later, here we are kind of thing. So it was it was really just following opportunities and, and you know, being flexible. And I think personally, I, what I really liked about it, Meredith, was the fact that it was a really, really tough problem. Like, I felt very intellectually stimulated by exactly you know, all the different dimensions that you have to consider and still be on top of when you're coming up with a, a solution that can actually work. Uh, yeah. Well, so, I mean, that was really just a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your insight and perspective, and it's so cool to hear about the new technologies that are hopefully coming down the pipeline. So um, thanks for joining us, and I hope that we get to get together again soon and have you out at some more student energy events. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Meredith. And hopefully the next time you have us on a show like this or whatnot, like we've got a reactor running and we're actually uh, scaling this thing up. So we're talking about tons of CO2. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Our last interview of the day is Meredith Adler with Kakimbo, a student who's based in Uganda, who Meredith had the privilege of meeting uh, in Bali in 2015 uh, and is working on some very fantastic projects over in Africa and is a very dynamic young energy entrepreneur. Hi, and welcome back to Energy Voices. I'm Meredith Adler, the executive director here with Student Energy, and we're really excited today to be bringing you an episode on young energy entrepreneurs taking action in their communities. Um, and my guest for this segment is actually a very special person because we met back in Bali at the International Student Energy Summit in 2015. Um, and it's been really fun to watch him grow through his projects since then. Um, so with me today is Kakimbo Bryan. Can you say hi to us, Kakimbo? Yes, Meredith. Hi, how are you? Greetings from Uganda. I'm very fine, actually. Excellent. Um, so where are you in Uganda right now? Right now I'm in the capital city, Kampala, and my project is located just outside, so I'm staying just near my project in Kampala, the capital city. Yeah, so why don't we dive into that? Can you tell us a little bit about what your project is? Yes, Mary did. My project is uh, West to energy training youth, equip them with skills uh, that will help them uh, manufacture briquettes. Briquettes are a replacement, an exact substitute of charcoal, uh, which comes from wood fuel. But we try to present an alternative to wood fuel, which is waste. So we utilize the bio waste and turn it into uh, briquettes for, for cooking and lighting. That's really interesting. Um, for those of us here in Canada, I guess we may not understand very well exactly what the difference is between briquettes and wood fuel. Can you explain a little bit about how the briquettes are made and then um, why it's important to switch to those um, instead of wood fuel where you are in Uganda? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, wood fuel uh, is mainly comprises of uh, uh, dead wood and uh, uh, charcoal, which has been dead wood burnt into uh, black charcoal, it's more like coal, 
but from trees. So uh, this has really been uh, affecting our environment and we have noticed we are getting a bit of drought in Africa. So we invented the briquettes mm -hmm. to, to create a substitute for wood fuel. Now briquettes, briquettes are uh, more like charcoal but created from bio waste. Bio include the water hythens that are on lakes and rivers. Uh, they include the dead crops after harvest, the, the, the remainder crops, and then uh, the waste from food markets, homesteads, and uh, even the municipality garbage grounds. So it is very important because it acts as a waste management tool, and at the same time it acts as an energy tool. Briquettes are really clean, they don't produce smoke, and they are really, really efficient because they burn way more longer than uh, charcoal, ordinary wood fuel, and then they burn clean. Okay. So that is very, very important health -wise. So that's really interesting. So you're basically, instead of using charcoal or a coal kind of like substance from trees, what you all are doing is finding organic waste that would have been in landfills or other, other places and using them to transform into kind of briquettes that burn cleaner longer um, for people. And so that's improving the air quality, is it? Yes, improving the air quality. So who's yes. working on this project with you? Who, um, like, do you have other yeah, students working on it have, with you? Yes, Meredith. We actually have uh, a partnership with Ndeje University. Uh, it's the second partnership with St. Chisto High School, Namugongo, which is also a, a top-notch secondary school in Uganda. We train their students, and they train other youth, that uh, school dropouts and unemployed youth. And this, this is helping us uh, create the multiplier effect. These people will take the knowledge and also develop these similar projects away from Uganda, uh, Uganda and even away from Kampala, the capital city. And also it helps us to uh, build an innovation center because Ndeji has facilities that uh, will help us innovate and make briquettes even more effective. Wow, that's amazing. So you're creating a whole network of youth who are working on this briquette project and enabling each other to kind of multiply how quickly you can get these briquettes into production and, and into people's hands. Yes. That's incredible. Um, so that's a very cool way to do these things. Where are you getting your supplies from for your materials? Is it just youth are collecting it, or are there certain landfills? Like, what does that? What does the process look like from start to finish um, when you're trying oh, to make it's a briquette? It's actually an interesting process. Uh, what we did, Meredith, is we um, employed this same youth who are uh, drop out to look for the, the rubbish so that we create value for the rubbish because uh, if you attach value people won't uh, drop it anywhere so they will know that it's valuable so they will put it in the right place so the youth themselves collect it for and then bring it to us so actually the cost of our production and then uh, all the landfills uh, youth go there we find you find that even the students that are in schools go down to landfills go down to whole households and even municipalities, collections, 
centers and bring to us reduce on the transportation costs because they they transport the rubbish directly to us. That's incredible, and you're able to pay them a fee for their service as well. So you're providing some youth employment um, alongside yes. the project. Wow, that's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Energy Voices. I, for one, am very inspired by your project. Um, and I hope that we get to see you in Mexico this year for the 2017 International Student Energy Summit um, that's happening from June 13th to 18th. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope that we can talk again soon. Thank you so thank much, you so Meredith. Much, Meredith. Uh, really, really thank glad, to be, glad here. to be here. Great. So before we close this month's episode of Energy Voices, I wanted to just give a little piece of advice to any youth or students that are listening to this show that are interested in pursuing uh, projects like the ones that uh, the three energy entrepreneurs we had on the show today are pursuing. As someone who has been involved in starting multiple organizations, I've really understood that being young, there's really two main limitations I see uh, in starting an organization or starting a business as a youth in comparison to someone who's been in the industry for a number of years. And that typically, typically comes down to network and resources. So somebody who's been in the industry for 30 years tends to have a, a very strong network and they have their own personal resources and they know where to find the resources, be that capital or human resources or materials or in-kind support uh, in order to develop their own project. And one of the biggest pieces of advice I can give to youth who are interested in starting new organizations is to get really good at finding your own resources and to get and, and in particular to spend quite a bit of time trying to figure out how you can access capital and raise money and be strong at the sales side of resourcing whatever it is that you're working on. Too often I see youth approach projects and problems from the perspective of what do they need to be successful. And one of the, the most consistent pieces of advice I give to youth that are pursuing new businesses or new ventures is to really spend time thinking about what the value is on the other side of the table. So for example, in situations like with Jorge and Renueva, um, they're producing a really incredible uh, product and an input to other industries that comes from waste and is significantly more environmentally friendly and cost effective. And that is an opportunity for whoever is using that on the other side of the table to differentiate their product, to potentially charge a premium. And, and, and those sorts of lenses that you can apply to whatever it is you're working on to, to get outside of your own bubble of, I need X, Y, Z resources to do ABC initiative. Uh, and we tend to think about what we need as opposed to what the value is for others. And then once you really understand what that high level value is, it's about making strong asks for that money and getting confident in talking about money and talking about terms. Um, and so it, it's just one thing that's come up consistently to me. And, and you saw some of the success of the entrepreneurs we had on the show in being confident and bold and asking for what they needed. And so I just wanted to share that story as sort of my uh, sort of recommendation to youth that are looking at pursuing similar ventures to these entrepreneurs. So that brings us to a close for this month's episode. Again, for all previous episodes of Energy Voices, you can visit soundcloud.com slash student or slash energy voices and you can also search for energy voices on itunes or your favorite podcast service thanks so much take care